Hey everybody, welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are doing that again, and my most favorite way to do that, which is looking at another sermon. Now, full disclosure, I uh, happened to run across this individual on Instagram, so this isn't a sermon that anybody has particularly suggested other than myself, and because it's my channel, it's what we're going to do. Plus, I think this is going to give us a nice balance to some of the ones we've most recently looked at, which haven't been that great or have just been downright terrible. Now, if you're here because of the thumbnail or you just accidentally stumbled across this because YouTube is awesome and it gave you this sermon in your algorithm, I'm Michael. I'm from The Honest Youth Pastor, and the sermon review that we're going to be doing, in case you've never heard of a sermon review, is a review in which we work through somebody's entire sermon, which this one's kind of long, just so you guys know. The sermon itself is an hour and seven minutes, so y'all know this review is going to be long, so just you know, prepare yourself for that. Maybe pace it out. Maybe break it up a little bit. I don't know what you need to do if you can't watch the full video. There's a link to our podcast down below, and it's just the audio, so all you have to do is listen to me not look at me the whole time. It's up to you. It's whatever. Also, there's some other links down there, you know, to support and do all that sort of stuff. If you want to do that, if not, just leave a like and subscribe. Pretty simple. That's free. You can do that right. On our sermon reviews, though, back to the point, is that each week we work through a variety of different sermons from a variety of different pastors. Again, sometimes suggested by you guys, sometimes just because I feel like looking at a particular pastor. And when we look at their sermon, we look for three specific things. The first being, do they read the scripture? The second being, do they exegete that scripture using context and culture? And thirdly, do they preach the gospel of Christ? Now, those are only three things we look for, and sometimes that bar isn't ever met, and sometimes that bar is blown out of the water. Now, full disclosure, again, I've not seen this whole sermon. I've seen about 20 minutes of it, give or take. So 20 minutes of an entire hour and 10 minute sermon obviously isn't a ton, but because it is so long, Let's go ahead and jump into the review screen so we can get to it. If you want to watch this full sermon without my review or commentary, link will be down in the description. Last thing I want to draw your, your attention to that is down in the description as well is we have a new sermon review guide. If you downloaded the old one, that one's still up on the site, but a new one is down there that I think is a little bit more functional for most people. Uh, I know I enjoy it a lot more and your guys' feedback kind of help create the new version. So if you want that free down in the links below, you just have to enter your email and it'll come to you. So that being said, I think, I think that we are to the point finally where we can get in to this sermon. I didn't take up too much time. I only took about three minutes up. So uh, right away, you can see at the very bottom of the review screen, it says "Glory, uh, glorify God in your body. The text is actually cut off, but the text is already on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Now, I have a feeling <laughs> this is going to be super deep. Uh, the part that I've listened to was already kind of super deep, but you're covering literally two verses and you're taking an hour and seven minutes to do it. So if you're going to do that as a pastor... Hopefully you got like the, uh, the engagement of the people to keep up on that. So that being said, let's hop into it. Let's see what we're doing today. Here we go. Let's get into it. If you are in Christ, your physical body is a temple of God, the Holy Spirit. Your physical body does not belong to you. Your physical body belongs to God. Because Christ bought you on the cross. If you're, if you're a believer, your body does not belong to you and therefore 
you must use your body to glorify God. That's the truths that we learn in this passage. There are four main truths right here in verses 19 and 20 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now let me catch you up where we're at in the context of this letter. Okay, so he's about to get into the context of the letter. It's an interesting thing that he does in this sermon. I'm sure other people do it. Um, this is the first sermon I think that I've reviewed that people, that anybody's done it, but I think it's helpful, is that he basically implores, well, I'm sure he doesn't take this from social media. I'm sure social media takes this from speech habits. But what he does is he basically surmises in a very quick, succinct way, this is what the sermon's about. And then he goes into context up to where they've gotten at this point. Now, my understanding of how he preaches is he preaches through verses. So like he's obviously already preached up through chapter six, verse 19, but he's going to surmise for us a bit, giving us context of how this, uh, these verses 19 to 20 fit in with the total context of the letter and what basically if you, in case this is your first Sunday walking in, he's caught you up on it, but he's also hooked you right with, Hey, this is what the sermon's about. So if you're interested in this little succinct summary of what I've just said, we're going to unpack that. And I think that's super interesting. I maybe was asleep that day in, in preaching class or hermeneutics class uh, when they mentioned this tactic, but I like it. Like it, it, it's very, again, I know social media, I know he didn't take it from social media. Social media took it from this, you know, I'm sure older uh, ways of engaging people, but he's imploring it really well. Here's what we're talking about. Cool. If you want to stick around, here's the context of everything up to this point, and then he'll get into the message. So let's see the context. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, to these Christians there, and they were a mess. They were making peace with sin inside the church. There was even a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And the church was not rebuking him for it. They didn't put him under church discipline for it. And they didn't excommunicate him for it, as they should have done. And so Paul has to write to them to tell them what they should be doing. And then after that whole thing, sexual immorality in the church, and they're not even dealing with it, then he transitions from that into just telling these Christians in Corinth, now you, this is how you must use your body. You can't look at someone else who's using their body for sexual sin while they profess to be a Christian and just wink at it. You must rebuke them. They must repent. And if they will not, you put them out of the church. But then he says, but how should you use your body, Corinthians? You weren't necessarily sleeping with your mother-in-law, but you need to know how your body is to be used. And so that, that's where we're at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So what's really interesting, again, this is why context is important. I, I, I probably will, I'm not, I'm probably not going to add anything to this sermon at all, but this is, I just want to like give you an example of what I think. Again, I've not finished it yet. We're going to finish it together. But I, I, I think this is going to be a great example of what it looks like to preach through a passage of scripture, or in this case, a couple of verses, and really bring out what's in there, really engage you, not with some external stuff, but completely buried in the text. And this is the context that we've already been given is incredibly helpful, right? We usually approach verses in like very cut off ways from the rest of the letter. Or if we do, we don't do the context very good justice. 
but he's kind of laid it out saying, hey, the reason that we're talking about this in verses 19 and 20 is because we previously talked about this in other verses. And Paul has a succinct thought here that he's trying to convey to those in Corinth. This is, it's, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I want you to notice in these two verses, spiritual things matter. The soul, the spirit matters. But the primary focus that Paul is honing in on is the physical body of a believer. Look at verse 19 again. And just let me highlight those things so that you understand. The primary thing he's talking about is how we use our physical bodies. Or do you not know that your... Huh? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you or within you whom you have from God that whom you have from God either means the Holy Spirit has been given to you believer from God or it more likely actually means the body that you have that is now a temple of the Holy Spirit that physical body God gave it to you as a gift it's God's and he gave it to you whom you have from God most likely means he's talking about the physical body you've been given and then he says you are not your own for that means because this is the beginning of verse 20 because you were bought with a price so therefore glorify God in your body your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So we're still, as we're working through this, we can glean a ton concerning how a human being, and even more specifically a Christian, must use their physical body. Many believers, even today, don't care at all about their physical bodies. They just say only the spiritual matters and they're basically Gnostics and say the spirit matters, the physical doesn't matter, and they neglect it. They fuel their body with garbage. They don't exercise. They use their body for sexual sin, use their body for all sorts of things because they've divorced the physical that does matter from the spiritual. So this will be interesting. Again, I haven't got all the way through this, but um, I remember when Mike Todd did his whole sermon on gluttony. And people were really praising him like, hey, you know, nobody talks about gluttony. Nobody talks about taking care of your body. Hey, I've never heard a sermon like this before. This is amazing that he's covering it. And there were a lot of people, I don't know if I was one of them or not, but there were a lot of people saying, well, if you preach through the scriptures, you will get to a point in which you will talk about this. And this is what he's doing right now. Um, I don't know where he goes past the 20 minute part, but I know like a huge part up to where I had to stop. Uh, listening to it before, you know, <laughs> I was able to sit down and record. He talks a ton about that. And I think this is where you don't, I'm not saying topical preaching is terrible. I'm just saying that when you're working expositionally through a book, um, you, you are going to, as you work expositionally through a book with your body, with your congregation, you are going to run across every theme that anybody could possibly want to talk about or have questions about as is contained within the writings uh, of the apostles. And so this is I think this is just another example of why expositional preaching is good because you're going to come across topics eventually 
that deal with the needs of the people that uh, you know you're either in community with or if you're a pastor with the needs of the people that are in the pew right or on the padded chair <laughs> whichever one you want to call it um and so yeah it's it's topical is not bad but i think if you preach through it you're going to get not only cover those topics like he's doing now but you're going to do so in a contextually um honest way so that cannot be so with us the doctrine that we learn in these two verses is simply this. If you are in Christ, your physical body must be used to glorify God because Christ bought you and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, your physical body must be used to glorify God. That means to show how amazing God is. To glorify him doesn't add anything to him. It's just like a telescope. You look at something that is actually huge. It's just far away. And you look through a telescope and it makes it look bigger. You're not actually making it bigger. You're just revealing how great and glorious something is, though it's far away. That's what it means to glorify God. So your physical body must be used for that purpose. And the two reasons he gives is because Christ bought you. And you are a temple of God the Holy Spirit. Your physical body is a temple of God the Holy Spirit. So now let's get to those four main points that we learn in this text. And then I'll make application for our personal lives along the way. But before we do that, I just need you to know this, this is a sermon. This is a passage of scripture that should radically change most all of your lives. Because I think many of you, you do not glorify God in the way that you use your body. I don't think you do. And I think you need to examine this text and you need to say, how do I need to repent and use my physical body for the glory of God and stop being a Gnostic and saying only the spiritual matters. Many of you need to repent of what you eat, what you drink, how sluggardly you are, slothful you are, you need to. And you need to know this is going to be heavy for you. I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> this is, I mean, from, oh, man, this is so good. Because most pastors won't do this. They just won't. Or if they do do it. So let's do do it. Hey, hey, I know. Uh, if, if, they, if they do this, they will accompany it with a joke. Um, they won't just say it straight faced. The, it'll it'll be like some like sarcastic band, backhanded comment that they actually do mean, but they they don't want to come off as too abrasive. This guy's just he's just like, look, I know you. We hang out. Some of you guys eat trash, right? I, he actually says that here in a little bit. Like he's he's being honest with them without being purposefully hurtful. He's simply saying, here is the spiritual reason for this. I think we could all learn a whole bunch from this text, but it has practical application in your real life. Because, I mean, the man's right. There's a lot of people, uh, I'm guilty of this. I mean, just thinking about it, right? It, the, the idea that we don't treat our bodies the way we should. Um, and not only just saying that, but he applied, he shows scripturally why that's an issue. 
this whole this whole he's connecting doing that with really not understanding that you're more than just a spiritual you know is you're it's, it's this gnostic idea that the physical is bad and it doesn't matter anyway and he's saying no you've been given this body by god and if you have been are you not responsible for taking care of it like this is <laughs> like when i first heard him say this i'm like man like this is just direct and loving and great because it puts you on the spot as a congregant, as a, as a person within this local body to be like, man, like, do I do this right? And then you're responsible for taking action for it, right? You're responsible for responding to that conviction from the Holy Spirit of, you know, maybe you shouldn't eat the fifth bowl of nachos tonight, right? Not because, you know, you're going to get fatter, but because, is this really the way you want to treat the temple of God? Like he, he's going to really hone in on this mindset and it's great. If you don't use your body or if you're not even aiming, I'm talking about aiming at using your body for the glory of God. So let's go and pray again right now and ask God to help us to understand what he's saying. And then to not only understand it, but then to bring it home and apply it and say, what would it look like if I actually lived like this is true? And not just said, yes, I believe that's true. But then you just leave and you don't act like it. That cannot be so for any of us. When I, when I preach, by the way, I say you a lot. Because I'm trying to be direct. And I know that you want to wiggle out of what God says and the application that I'm bringing to you, I say you, because you, every single one of you individually, must understand this and live like this is true. So I do not say we. You can wiggle free from we's. You're like, yeah, yeah, we should. No, you must submit to this text of Scripture. But when I say that, when I say you instead of we, I'm not excluding myself from these things and not saying these things don't need to apply to me. I'm saying you, but by you, I'm included in that. But I'm not going to say we and let you just go, yeah. No, you personally and individually must understand this and apply this to your life and actually live like it's true. And I'm included in that as well. So don't take me for saying you thinking that I'm saying, this doesn't apply to me. I don't need to live like this is true. I'm included as well. The, I don't remember what sermon it was. It's not been too far back on the sermon reviews, when, within the last six, at least, in which I said, like, we have to, as pastors, be very careful about the words we use so as not to confuse the people that are listening to us. And, like, like we shouldn't just assume that they know what we mean by things. Like we, we need to explain it to them because when, whenever you say something, who knows what they're actually thinking you mean by that. And this was a great example of clarification. When I say you, I'm talking about you. I'm not excluding me, but I want you to know you not, I, I love the whole, you can wiggle out from we, because you can like as a group, uh, I might be the weakest link, but I'm still a link. And he makes it very direct that like, you need to do something about like, again, just great. But you need to know, this is hopefully going to be wonderfully intense for God's glory. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again and we ask you by the power of your spirit to help us understand what you are saying here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 
And please, Father, do not let us wiggle free and try to excuse our slothfulness or excuse our gluttony or excuse our lusts and sexual sin. Please bring conviction home to each and every one of us in the ways that we need to be convicted concerning us not using our bodies for your glory. So please bring conviction, grant repentance, grant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, give us strength to obey this text and glorify you in the way that we use our bodies. Please help us. Please make applications to the hearts and minds of each individual person here in thousands of ways that I could never conceive of to try to apply it to them. Bring it home so that we may be changed and live for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. First point of this text, it's in the first part of verse 19. If you are in Christ, your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you heard this text before? Most of us have heard this text a lot, right? When I was growing up, like, this is the go-to text for why you can't get a tattoo. I just remember that all the time. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. But what is he saying? Or do you not know? He's saying, you know, if you're a Christian, you know this is true. Do you not know this? Do you not perceive this? Do you not understand or discern that your, your individual physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you or who is within you, whom you have from God? Do you not know that? Do you not know that your physical body is a dwelling place for one of the persons of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's what your physical body is. The reason he's having to ask it like that, rhetorically, is because the Corinthians are not living like that's true. They're giving in to sexual sin. That's the immediate context. They're being connected with prostitutes. They're living like Corinthians and not living like Christians. And so he just has to say, do you seriously not understand that your physical body is the dwelling place for the third person of the Trinity? God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Can you imagine if David took prostitutes into the temple and went into the holy place of the temple and committed those acts in the holy of holies? Can you imagine how, whoo, that would be incredibly profane to use the temple of God where God's presence dwells in the holy of holies above the Ark of the Covenant to try to go in there and defile it? And that's what you and I do every single time we sin. That's what he's saying. Do you not know? The temple under the old covenant was this place to where God manifested his glory, his presence. So he overshadowed this mercy seat 
which is on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the innermost part of this large physical temple. In the holy place, the holy of holies, God's Shekinah glory, his manifestation of his glorious presence dwelt there. And that's just a picture, ultimately, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, throughout the New Testament, it constantly gets applied to the church. Because when Christ saves a sinner, God the Holy Spirit is given to that believer, and our bodies become a physical temple of God the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, takes up residence in us, is sanctifying us, is strengthening us, is purifying us, convicting us of sin, granting us repentance, producing fruit in our lives. So a few things real quick that I just want to point out, because I know it's been, I'm trying to let him go pretty long times in talking so that I'm not breaking in a lot, so we can kind of work through this sermon fairly quickly for you guys that are watching or listening. Um, there's a few things here that, that I think are helpful. Like when, if, as a pastor, when you're preparing a sermon, especially, but also for the congregant. So let's start with the pastor first. What he's doing here is giving us a great amount of detail uh, in his description of the temple. He's walking us through Old Testament theology into the New Testament, and he's doing so. Again, I, I'm assuming, especially just with just one sermon to go off of, I don't know if he does this all the time, but it's a pretty, I mean, pretty good guess, I think, that would be sustained in fact if we watched a few of these sermons. He probably does this a lot. So it's not that his people don't know this, but it's that that in doing so, he's reminding them of this over and over and over again. So they, they remember this from the Old Testament. So it's ingrained in you. You know what's going on. There's not, again, there's not an assumption made that you know what he's talking about. He's walking you through all of this. Secondarily, he's interacting with the text. So it's not just a flat flat reading, right? So when he's talking about, do you not know, right? You could just read over that and say, do you not know? But he's really bringing it out and saying, well, how is Paul, you know, trying to convey this? Why is he conveying it this way? And he, he, he gave us some, again, contextual examples. He's, he's emphatically saying like, do you not know that? Not just like, don't you know, but like, don't you know? Like, you know, sometimes we have to convey that as pastors to to demonstrate that this isn't just a flat dead text that doesn't do anything that to its original audience specifically, it meant a lot and he's writing it again. And this is why context is important in such a way, contextually building off the other things he said, his relationship with them, that there, there's certain things that we can understand that kind of how he's communicating this and why he's communicating this. And so by the time we read this passage, again, he's bringing that text alive for his congregants, not just for the service, not just to get them riled up, not just to get them engaged and excited, though it probably does those things, but so that when they're reading the Bible for themselves, they know what to look for. And it's not just, well, I, I read my Bible today. I checked off a box, but it's like the, the word is living. It's, it's engaging. It's exciting. The Holy Spirit is speaking through it um, still today. Right. And so those two things are really important, I think, not just for those of us that prepare sermons, but for those of us that listen to sermons. Like there are certain things that I think sometimes, or I, I don't think, I know that people are sitting in the in the pews or the padded seats and they're thinking like, I don't quite understand what he just said. Like, what is he describing? 
And though you may not like to preach a long time, again, this, uh, this is an hour and seven minute sermon. The reason it's probably this long with only two verses is because there is this information built in for the benefit of his congregation. Here in a minute, he's going to get to where he specifically talks to the children in the service. I don't know if you guys can hear it or not. I've been able to hear it, but I know sometimes the audio doesn't quite convey correctly. There's been babies crying in the background this whole time. There's like little kids that you can hear every so often talk. This is, if I had to guess, an integrated service. The kids don't leave for children's church. They're here with their parents. And he's deliberate here in a moment, I think it's actually pretty soon, where he talks to them specifically. So it's not just, hey, don't take your kids to children. You're like, we don't believe in that. It's an actual integrated service where he engages with them and not just in a, you know, talking down to sort of way, but engages them in the actual sermon that he's preaching to everyone else. Um, and he does it in such a way that it's not, well, you'll see here in a minute. But the point is, like, there's little things that you can pick up here that are really good that that in other sermons with unnamed pastors that I won't name have to make it this big show to dial in on one little point where what he's doing in this sermon is bringing them out as he goes, demonstrating how the text is alive within the context so you understand why it's being said this way, how it's being said, and why it applies to you. Let's keep going. And he's having to say, do you realize what you're doing when you do not use your physical body for the glory of God? You're defiling the temple of God. Not only what happened in the innermost part of the temple in Jerusalem mattered. Not only that. It did. But how the temple itself was even decorated, set up, kept clean, kept in good shape, that mattered. And so in 2 Kings or 1 Kings, rather, chapter 22. No, 2 Kings 22. Josiah becomes king and figures out that the temple is in bad shape. And so what does he do? He sends as much money as needed to repair and restructure the temple. Josiah, this godly king, sees that the temple is in bad shape, so he not only sends these builders and workers to get the temple in better shape, He says, you don't even have to ask them how much money they use. I trust them. I want the temple in good shape. Not just the inside, but also the outside. This is what should help us understand what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is not only significant that the Holy Spirit lives within you, indwells you, That's important. But it also matters what you do with the temple that the Holy Spirit lives in. That's his whole point. Do you not know that your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You need to use this truth to examine yourself. Every one of you individually. Examine yourself You who are in Christ, look at that. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom God has given me. Use this truth to examine yourself. Test yourself. Boys and girls, children, look up here at me. So here's where he deliberately engages with the kids, which I think is really helpful. Now, again, I I don't know. I'm going to guess. I'm going to just go out on a limb. I don't think it matters, but I'm just going to guess here, right? 
if you have an integrated service, you know that kids can only sit for so long. So me saying integrated worship service with all sort of different ages, hour and a, hour and seven minute sermon. Like if you're a parent, you're like, ah, it sounds good, but I don't think it'll work. So just, I know we're 30 minutes into this sermon review. We're 16 minutes into the actual sermon. So we still got a little bit. But as far as parsing off when you engage with kids, when you don't engage with the kids, right? So 15 minutes, the kids have been sitting here for this sermon. Who knows how long before that, before he got up. So I'm going to guess this is intentional. Like this is purposeful. Like he knows that 15 minutes in, he's going to have to kind of re-get the kids' attention a little bit. Um, that's a guess. Maybe not. But here we go. Have you heard in John chapter 2 when Jesus, when he was on the earth, when Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem. Have you ever read or heard about that? What Jesus did when he went to the physical, this big temple in Jerusalem. Have you, go like this, if you've heard about when Jesus went to the temple. Jesus finds people inside the temple of God, abusing it. Using the temple for glorifying themselves, gratifying themselves. They weren't using the temple for the glory of God like it should be used for. Boys and girls, do you know what Jesus did when he saw people inside the temple of God who were abusing it? He turned over their tables. Christ went in there, flipped their tables, took their money bags, emptied them out on the ground, and boys and girls, Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove people, drove them out of the temple so they would stop abusing what is to be for God's glory. It's an intense scene. Parents, if you haven't read that in a while, adults, if you haven't read that, go read John chapter 2 and see the zeal that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his father's house. Look what he does to drive away those abusers of the temple in Jerusalem when they had turned it into a den of robbers. That's what he says. My father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you have turned the temple into a den of thieves. What does the Lord Jesus Christ see when he looks at your physical body, believer? who he has made a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does he see? He came to the temple in John 2, and when he sees the abuses, he makes a whip. He is angry. Not sinfully angry. Righteous anger. This zeal consumes him. So what does Christ see when he looks at your body, believer, whom he has made a temple of God the Holy Spirit. Examine yourself. Have you turned the temple of God into a temple of lusts, using your body for sexual sin? What does Christ see when he looks at his temple that is you, believers? Have you turned the temple of God into a den of drunkenness, being Influenced by alcohol or drugs rather than by God the Holy Spirit. 
Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The point is, I will not let anything dominate or control my mind. I will be sober-minded so that I will be filled and guided by the Spirit. Or are, are you turning the temple of God into a den of drunkenness by being intoxicated, whether it be with any kind of, whatever substance it is? What does Christ see when he looks at the way you use your body? Have you turned the temple of God? So one of the things I think is important to note here too, what he's doing is a bit different than I think some pastors might approach this passage, how some pastors might approach this passage. So he's acknowledging the fact that as believers, like you are, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are the temple of God. And then he's made this really good comparison. Well, he's made the exact comparison Paul does that like, this is how the temple operates, you know, the physical temple. And now you are the temple, your body itself is the temple. And so he's, he's really fleshing out how Paul is using this sort of imagery within first Corinthians. And then he's really applying it directly to his audience and doing so in such a way that it's not like, Hey, sinner repent, but Hey, believer, think about this. See, I think lots of times, this is what I mean by this is a little bit different because oftentimes what pastors will do is they'll preach in such a way that it's like to, to a salvific message to the sinner, which we should do. A hundred percent should do that. However, we, we don't think often, or at least I don't hear it a lot when I do these sermon reviews of pastors really preaching for the sanctification of their people right? This reality that, yes, you've been saved. Yes, you've been justified. The whole, you have the Holy Spirit. But what does that look like in your life now, though, believer? Like, how are you being sanctified to be more like Christ in your day-to-day life? And this is what he's doing here with this sermon. He's unpacking this text using the, I mean, working through just these couple verses, but using the same analogies that Paul uses and saying, all right, you need to examine yourself. He said that I don't know, three, four times now with the, like, when you're hearing this, don't just let it go one ear and out the other, because this isn't for the unbeliever that doesn't know who Jesus is. This is for the believer that does know, but maybe is ignoring or misusing or not thinking about how they're using our body, which is the temple of God. So I think this is, this is important to, to note because a lot of these sermons we cover, um, are very much like salvific and not necessarily sanctification driven. And even if they are a little bit sanctification driven, it's very like loose surface level stuff. And this is much, I I think this is much more to the point. Um, And I would argue it's much more to the point because he's going, he's expositionally working through it. Into a den of gluttony, filling your body with trash by what you eat or drink. Can you imagine if Jesus walked into the temple and they weren't, they hadn't turned it into a den of thieves, but everyone in Jerusalem had come to the temple to dump out their trash inside of it. Can you imagine if the people in that day used the temple of God as their trash heap? I think we all go, bad use for the temple. Do you not do the same thing when you fuel your body with trash? What does Christ see when he looks at the way you use his temple? Have you turned the temple of God into a den of slothfulness? 
using your body for sluggardliness, being a sluggard, being idle, rather than being fit so that you can best serve God and others? Is it a den of lusts, a den of drunkenness, a den of gluttony, a den of slothfulness, or would you say this is the temple of the living God, and the way that I use my body matters because the Spirit indwells me? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Examine yourselves. Use this truth also for warning. This truth that if you're a believer, your body is a temple of God the Holy Spirit. Use it to warn yourself, to awaken yourself from neglecting or abusing the temple of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus flipped over tables and drove out abusers with a whip when they turned the temple in Jerusalem into a den of robbers. What do you think Christ will do to you? If you continue to use his temple as a den of lusts, drunkenness, gluttony, or slothfulness. Again, we don't see this type of preaching a lot anymore. At least most people don't see this a lot anymore. It's, the, it's this pastoral love. It's this warning. He's, he's warning the people that he's been put to shepherd over. This is what the text says. You bear responsibility. You need to think about this. Right? I mean, what do you, that's, he's just put, what, like, what do you think Jesus will do if this is what he did to the temple that they were disgracing and you are now the temple? What do you think he will do? And it's not like a fire and brimstone. You better repent and burn. It's, it's, it's a loving exhortation to the people that he knows he's responsible for. Just like the whole before where he, at the very beginning where he's like, you know, some of you guys need to do a better job at this because you're not doing a really good job now. And it's not in a hateful judgmental way. It's in a, hey, this, this is what the scripture says. So then how shall we live? It's just, it's being incredibly faithful to the text and communicating it in a loving way. What will he do to you? What do you think also, let me flip this totally around. What do you think Christ will do if you turn his temple into a den of vanity and pride? Here's, here's the ditch. Many people who don't take care of their bodies are in this ditch. They don't take care of their physical bodies that is a temple of the Spirit. And they ease their conscience by not taking care of their bodies and just stay at peace sleeping in this evil ditch by saying, I don't want to be vain because I see all these people who work out and exercise and they just do it so you know everyone can see how great they look. And so... That eases their conscience as they sleep in their sin and slothfulness. You can't stay in this ditch just because the duty that you must do could be abused into being prideful or vain. That's, that's a foolish way to think. To neglect a duty because you don't want to deal with the temptation of the vanity or pride that could come from it. If you're being vain or prideful, like, like many of you are, who exercise. I see you. I know. 
You do it because you like to look a certain way. You don't need to repent of taking care of your body. You need to repent of the motives of taking care of your body just so that you look good to other people. The repentance doesn't need to be, I'll stop taking care of my body and fill it with trash because I don't want to be vain. No, that's a foolish argument to say, I'm going to ignore one duty because I don't want to abuse this duty. Now, we can't avoid a duty because you fear you may turn another duty into a vice. But those of you who try to take care of your bodies for vanity or for pride, you need to repent of that. You need to confess that. It's not about the way you and I look. It's about being fit so that we can use our bodies best to glorify the Lord because he deserves it. So one of the things too here that I think is really good, I do a very poor job at this. I know I do. I try to get a little bit better at it. But, uh, and that, in, in full disclosure, that's why I really like covering these really good sermons is because yes, we can learn a lot from the bad, but I think we can learn a lot from the good as well. And one of the things that I'm not great at, but I think he just did really well was saying, here's the issue, but then showing the other extreme of that issue, right? So oftentimes, I, I think I recently actually did it in uh, my most recent sermon. I got to thinking about afterwards, like I just went on, I just went one extreme and didn't talk about the other one, which was equally as, as valid and equally should have been, uh, I can't remember if pursued or avoided, but you, you get my point. What he's saying here is that he's presenting all the sides of it and saying like, don't, don't go to the extremes, just be faithful in what you're doing and know why you're doing it. And uses something um, that a lot of people, I think, um, can connect with at least, right? There's a lot of stuff. He talked about lust or drunkenness or things, but um, he picks the gluttony one or the, the, the work, you know, the, being the fit, uh, being fit as the example to demonstrate like, like you don't just give up because you're afraid you're going to be prideful. But if you are prideful, you don't just, you, you just need to repent of that, not the taking care of your body, not the doing thing. Like, I just think that was short, sweet, to the point, but did what I think is lacking in a lot of, well, you know, obviously he's, he's thought this out. It's a well thought out sermon, but what's missing in a lot of them is not just going after one extreme, but showing the other as well and saying like, we don't want to go either side. We want to make sure we're doing this for the right reasons. And I think the, the really wise thing he said there was not giving up one thing because you think it might become a vice, but rather pursuing the right thing but keeping the motive correct is, is a great advice. The second truth that we learn in this text of Scripture, not only is your body a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, but then he just keeps building. You are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. The Greek is literally, you are not yours. You are not yours. You do not belong to yourself. God owns every single person by virtue of his creating power. Every single person that exists, everything that exists, God has ownership over them or that. Because he created everyone and everything. Boys and girls, who made you? Okay, so here, here's the thing. I didn't, I, again, after 20 minutes, I didn't hear any of this. So he's doing it again. Like, my whole point is to say, integrated worship services are possible 
if you're purposeful in ensuring that you're not just talking over everyone that's there. You're you're purposeful engaging the kids that are there, the teens that are there, the adults that are there. You're you're purposeful in doing this. And this is what he's doing again. Yeah, the Baptist Catechism for boys and girls says, God made me. Do you know that? Then the next question is, what else did God make? God made all things. I don't know if you heard him, but if you did, there was a bunch of little kids that just repeated God made all things. Guys, catechisms are great. They are, they're really, really helpful. There's a bunch out there. We have a resource for it. I don't want to like, like be promoting it right now. The point is just catechisms are really good. Like if you need them, you can find them online and they're very helpful to teach your kids like in very succinct ways about who God is, all of that. Just, just look for them. They're great. And so if God made all things, who owns all things? That's right. There's nothing in existence that God doesn't look at and say, that is mine. I created it. God owns everyone and every single thing by virtue of his creating power. He created everyone and everything. This is why Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for himself. He has made all things for himself. But God also owns every single person and every single thing by virtue of his sustaining power. By virtue of his sustaining power. He owns everyone and everything because if for a millisecond he was not sustaining and upholding everyone and everything, everything would disintegrate. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so what this means, philosophically speaking, is you're not independent. You are not an independent creature. Therefore, you cannot belong to yourself. You belong to who you're dependent on. And so you're, you're not free. You're dependent on God. God sustains you every second of every single day. Therefore, he owns you. Even you who are unbelievers. You who have not bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ yet. Even you who profess to be Christians, but you are not. You're not because you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ Jesus. You're not a Christian. I don't care what you say. And you, some of you maybe even know who you are. That there's no evidence in your life that you have actually been born again. That you submit to Christ. You want to glorify Christ. You love him. You want to obey him. I don't, look, I don't, I've never met this dude in my life, but he's going hard and it's great, right? It's again, it's not in a judgmental way. He's just saying, matter of fact, this is how you know there is no fruit. You've not turned from your sin and turned to Jesus. There's like, there's nothing there that's like, mm. <laughs> it, so all the time people are like, well, you know, all the it's always judgmental, judgmental, judgmental. There is nothing judgmental about it. He's just stating matter of fact, this is what it means to be a Christian. You're not. And he's addressing the whole plethora of people that could be in the congregation, right? He has everyone in there, children, teens, adults, older adults, everyone's in there. 
everything up to that moment where he said that has been addressed to Christians, but he does take a moment out to recognize the fact there may be people in the congregation right now. You're not believers. You're just here. Or maybe you think you are and you're not. And he's drawing that out as well. Like, how does this apply to you? What does this mean for you? Like, yes, that's all I got to say. Doesn't matter who you are, unbeliever, false convert, true believer, every single person, every single thing belongs to God. You are not yours. So unbelievers or you who have duped yourself or you've been duped by false teachers into thinking that I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart and now I'm a Christian. That's a lie from the pit of hell that you just pray some prayer and there's magic incantation that happens. Repent and believe the gospel. That is how God saves sinners. Turn from your sin, embrace Christ in faith and all that he is for you as he's offered to you in the gospel. Again, defining terms, right? He could have said repent and not defined it, but there he defines it. Turn from your sin and hold to Christ. Repentance. Do that now. Turn from sin, embrace Christ today. He will receive you. If you will go to Christ, he will receive you. He will forgive you. He will reconcile you to his Father. He'll preserve you. He'll protect you. And one day, he'll perfect you. You who are deceived, examine yourselves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be in the kingdom of heaven. Many call Christ Lord, but it's a false profession, and they've never truly turned from their sin and embraced Christ in faith. And it's evident in their lives because they don't live for him. Maybe that's you, and you need to know God owns you by his creating and his sustaining power and providence. But only if you're a Christian is this next truth true for you. Look, look at the next part of verse 20, or rather the first part of verse 20. For you were bought with a price. You are not your own, true for everyone and everything. First part of verse 20, only true for you if you have been born again and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you can have no assurance, no certainty that Christ actually died for you if you will not turn from your sins and embrace Christ. He did not die for those who will be in hell. Now there is, I mean, his, his doctrine's coming out. So some of you watching this are like, oh my gosh, he's a Calvinist. I can't believe it. He's terrible. Like, <laughs> like, fine. If you don't agree with that, you don't agree with it. But the point is you at least have to contend with the doctrine and where it comes from. And I'm sure plenty of you would be more than willing to contend with it. But the point here, here's the main point without like you saying like, you're wrong, you're right, is that at least when you're listening to a sermon, uh, when something like this comes up, if you're not clear at least on where that pastor is coming from it, theologically, uh, specifically, you know, in particular doctrines, this will help you at least sort of, especially if you're just visiting a church, this will help you figure out where they're coming from. 
And if you fall into that camp or not, or if you still, you know, I, I think it's silly not to go to a church, for example, if you don't agree, like with the whole Calvinist doctrine, or if you don't agree with the Arminian, like I, I get people are going to like split hairs on that. Um, I, I don't agree on all the particular doctrines my, my pastor talks about, but I very much appreciate that he talks about them and then kind of goes through them. So, I mean, it's one of those things that I know this is going to be like a iffy part for people, but the learning part we can take from this is that he's very clear on his doctrine and that he, he doesn't try to hide it. Like, here it is. This is what it is. And this is what we believe. He died for his people. He laid down his life for his sheep. So if you are in Christ or if you would go to Christ in faith, you need to know this reality. You were bought with a price. And now don't forget the whole context of where we're at. He's talking about how you use your physical body, and he's giving all these reasons that he's going to come to that crescendo at the end of verse 20. Glorify God in your body. But he's giving all the reasons first before he says, since all these things are true, Christian, this is how you must use your body. And so the truth that we glean from the beginning of verse 20 is this. If you are in Christ, your physical body belongs to God because Christ bought you on the cross. Christ bought you on the cross. He purchased you. He not only says you were bought. There's, there's two words here. For you were bought. That's a verb. That means to be bought in a marketplace. To be redeemed. To be purchased. And then he adds another word that's translated in our English Bibles, with a price. Not only you were bought, but he emphasizes the price that was paid. What price did Christ pay to purchase his people on the cross? He gave his life unto death. This noun that's translated with a price, it brings with it the idea of an inestimably valuable price, a precious object, a high price, a great price. You were bought on the cross, believer, by the Lord Jesus Christ, not with silly things, trivial things, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. So a couple things here I think that are really important, right? So the first one is that he is obviously using some cross-references. He just did there from 1 Peter. But secondly, he was careful beforehand to really point out what does God own? Well, God owns all things. Who did he buy with the high price of Christ? The believer. So he, he purposely built that and set it up to where he's walked us through the context. He's explained what's happened before. He's gone through those two verses. He's explained the, the, the direct applicability to those verses uh, to the believer. Then he's moved on to you're his because like the, all of this applies. Why? Because he bought you. And so like this whole build has been like, you're not bought, like he just said, with some like, who cares what thing. You're bought with the price. Now, God owns everything anyway. So you, you're, it's not like you can just do whatever you want because he's already laid down his law and uh, his design is good. But specifically, he's bought those that are his um, by Christ. And so all of this has been built in such a way that, again, he's, 
It's not that he's even building the sermon in a particular way. It's just that he's following how the text is written. Um, so it's it's got this coherent thought. It's building off of previous thought. He's just working us to the logical conclusion in verse 20. You were ransomed. You were bought, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect lamb. And do you see the point? Christ gave his life unto death, suffered under the wrath of God that you have earned for your sin so that he could buy your physical body. He not only bought your soul on the cross, he bought your physical body. That's why he's saying, therefore, Glorify God in the way that you use your body. It's not only your soul that matters. It's the way that you use the body. Christ so again, this is going back to what he said before, right? This whole Gnostic view um, that most people have of body and soul. Um, but he's tied it directly into... Um, he, he's tied it directly into the reality that he's already kind of walked us through. Explaining that this isn't just spiritual. This is very physical. And a very physical body has been bought. Christ bought all of you. Therefore, you must use all of yourself to glorify him. You were bought with a price. Notice in this text, Christ did not purchase salvation. Christ didn't purchase salvation just in general. And then if people in and of themselves, according to their own exercising of their will, if they can get in to the salvation that Christ bought, then they're a Christian. No, this text says Christ bought individual, particular people. And you dishonor Christ when you act like he just bought salvation in general. Christ took names to the cross. And if you're a believer, he took your name. He didn't just make it possible. He purchased a people for himself so that in time, God the Holy Spirit would come to those particular people that Christ purchased. And as they hear or read the gospel, the Spirit would effectually call them to Christ. He would... Renew our wills, enlighten our minds, enable us and persuade us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Does that sound familiar? That is effectual calling. That is the Holy Spirit applying the redemption to us because Christ bought us. Hallelujah. You should use this truth for comfort if you are truly a believer. This is, there's some of you who are facing death, or you have faced death in the past couple of years. There's some of you that have no idea, but you're about to face death before long. Your own death, or probably the death of a family member. It's coming. It's coming for all of us. And you need to have Heidelberg 1 memorized. You need Heidelberg 1, by the way, is the catechism. You need to have this catechism question and answer memorized at least 
the essence of it. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's what flows from 1 Corinthians 6.20. I've been bought. The answer is, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own. But belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is my only comfort in life and in death? 1 Corinthians 6, 20. I have been bought with a price. So one of the things I want to point out is that there's lots of people that don't like, like catechisms, fine, whatever. I, <laughs> but let me contend real quick for them. Clearly, creeds and catechisms are not, are not scripture, right? But they come from scripture. Like that answer, like what he just read off there, uh, verbatim was the answer to that question, the Heidelberg, that question in the Heidelberg Catechism, and the reason it's worded that way, and the reason you probably picked up on some similarities word-wise that he was saying, is because they connect with Scripture. Catechisms collect the Scriptures together and say, what what do all of these Scriptures say? And so they will present a question that is important for the Christian to have an answer to, have that question presented, and then present the answer to that question from Scripture. So that um, when you understand the Scriptures uh, in a succinct way, you will basically have a catechism, essentially. So this is why catechisms are important. You as a believer are going to ask, get asked questions all the time, or you're going to be, you're going to be in situations where questions are asked. And what catechisms do are like, uh, you know, one of those books that used to be, you know, driving for dummies or computer programming for dummies. They would have like a succinct, brought together little short answer uh, that can kind of comprise a lot of bigger, bigger informations, uh, a lot of... Uh, they would, they would condense down a lot of other information into one there. And so that's what catechisms do. They take a lot of scripture, condense it down into a, uh, a, like an audible short answer um, that the believer can know themselves and take comfort in, but can also use to preach the gospel to other people as well. And so that's why they're helpful. And that's why I think they're great. Um, because yes, you need to read scripture. And yes, you need to be in scripture. Uh, but the catechism sort of bring things together in a very succinct way. Um, that's, again, like you said, this entire, I'm sure, again, that's probably one of the reference texts for that answer um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. So, I do not belong to me. This is not only something you should use to exhort you into using your body to glorify God, but this is the truth that you use to comfort yourself greatly. Jesus owns me, and he's incredibly stingy with his property. 
He will not let anything happen to me if I am in him that will not work out for good and my salvation and his glorification. Hallelujah. Memorize Heidelberg Catechism question one. There's a reason it's question one, because that's the most important question a Christian can ask and answer. What is my only comfort in my life and in death? You need to have that down so that when you face death or you face the death of someone else, your mind is going to go straight back to, but Jesus bought me. I am his. All things work together for good, therefore. But now look at the, the fourth truth. And here's the only command in this text, the only imperative. So, he says, which means, therefore, since all these things are true, you were bought with a price, you're not your own, you're a temple of God the Holy Spirit, so glorify, that's an imperative verb, it's a command from the Lord, glorify God in your body. There's the command. This is why our doctrine is, if you're in Christ, you must use your physical body to glorify the Lord because Christ bought you and has made you a temple of the Holy Spirit. You who have been reading and studying through 1 Corinthians, this is the crescendo of this whole section in the letter. Look in your own Bible. Look at verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1. What's the first word? Now, that's a transition to a whole new section that he's going to start answering the questions that the church at Corinth had sent to him. They sent him a bunch of questions, and then he's going to answer all those questions in detail. So what that means is verse 20 in chapter 6 is the crescendo of that section. All of this section that began in chapter 5, verse 1, with it is actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. That's the beginning of a new section. And verse 20 in chapter 6 is the end. The end of all of that. The end of this whole section on how do Christians use their bodies is because all of these things are true, you must use your physical body to show how great the Lord is. To glorify him in your body. We must use, or why must a Christian use his body to glorify God? Because he owns it. And he doesn't suggest. This is not a suggestion. This is not, it will go better for you in your life if you glorify God in your body. This is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul, his authoritative representative, you must obey this text or suffer the consequences. Thomas Watson has a masterful book called A Body of Divinity. So real quick, he's about to go, I guess, like into something else. We're about 40 minutes in to the hour and seven minute sermon. Just to kind of give you, you know, Take a break, maybe pause, get up, right? Because uh, this is a lot. But to be honest with you, for an hour and seven minute sermon, it hasn't felt like we've been here that long, right? I know, I know we've been at, you know, an hour and 10 as far as where we're at right now in this review. But like in general, 
the way one speaks and the one the way one communicates their points does matter in regards to how long something feels. Um, I'd be interested to know, right? Uh, do you feel like this has been a really long sermon so far? I don't, but I'd like to know your your opinion on that as well. Let me know in the comment section because I think oftentimes people think that an hour is a really long time, but really, in reality, if you're interested and engaged, it's not a very long time at all. Um, was it? Oh, one of the things that I, the, here's the whole reason I stopped it is I think one of the things that he's done really well here, especially when we get to verse 20, where he's talking about it being a command, right? The second half of verse 20, you know, 20, 20B, where it says, so glorify God with your bodies being a command, right? Not a suggestion. And I think that comes with that. I don't know if that hits you a certain way, but like when I, I heard that, I thought, man, we really need to look at that though. Right. But he's not wrong in the sense that he, Paul has specifically said what he said for the reasons he said it. And he's walked us through a bit of that here as much as, you know, I think we should reasonably expect. And he gets to the end and there's this imperative then. So if this is what's happened, this is what you should do. And I don't know if we really lean in on that a whole lot, have the, the boldness to tell uh, as pastors. I don't know if we lean on it as often as we should have the bold humility to tell people, I'm not the one saying this. This is what scripture says. So if this be true, everything we've talked about up to this point, then what it says here about so therefore glorify God is is like it's not a suggestion. If everything before this is accurate, there's a reason Paul then says if this is how you're, if, the, if you've been bought, you should act this way. And I think, again, he's done a great job of really bringing out the, the weight um, and the tone of the text uh, as it's been laid out. So let's see, he's got, a, I guess, a quote here he's going to read off. And in that, one of the first sermons in this book where he's just preaching through the catechism, he preached a sermon on what we have as question two in our Baptist catechism. What is the chief end of man? Why does a human exist? What's the highest good, the pinnacle of a human being's existence? And I hope you know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why a human exists. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Watson says, to glorify God consists in four general things. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Watson says, this is the yearly rent we pay to the crown of heaven. This is the yearly rent we pay to the crown of heaven. We glorify God by appreciation. That means having high thoughts about God. This means in your prayer life, you appreciate him, think highly of him, as the psalmist does in Psalm 97, 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all false gods. Watson says, to glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem him most excellent, and search for diamonds in this rock only. Have high thoughts of God. We glorify God by appreciation. Watson also points out we glorify God by adoration, which means worship. Not worship as in all of life is worship. Worship as in private worship, family worship, 
public worship. Real quick, I don't know if you guys know what family worship is. Some people do, some people don't. So you have obviously corporate worship in the church, private worship where you do, you know, your prayer, um, Bible reading, some people sing, and then you have family worship, which is basically when a family comes together and does a mini version of what the congregation does. You come together, you read the scriptures, you sing a song, you pray together, right? Um, and you fellowship. And so it's something that really, I think, um, it's hard to incorporate if you don't do it from when the kids are little, but it's not impossible to incorporate. It's this idea of building in this structure um, in your household that is, again, Christ is the center of everything we do. And having family worship is just one more way to demonstrate that. Um, I wish I could remember. There's a book. I don't know. There's a book that uh, my friend Rob helps, you know, co-host the Babylon Pastor podcast. He, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's, it's about family worship. It's a real short book. It's really helpful. But if I can remember, I'll put it down below. If not, I mean, don't expect it because I always forget to do that. But um, yeah, family worship is important. Public worship being the assembly of the saints to offer up spiritual sacrifices gathered together as God has instituted in his scriptures. We glorify God by adoration. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord. O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. The glory. Ascribe it to him. Because he deserves it. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We glorify God by adoration, by worshiping Him. Third, we glorify God, Watson says, by affection, by loving Him, by cherishing Him. God counts that as us glorifying Him when we obey Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You glorify God by loving Him. Fourth, we glorify God by subjection, by submitting to him. This is joyful obedience to his commands in the scriptures. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, after those four general ways, Watson then goes on to give 17 particulars of how you and I can glorify God. How can we obey 1 Corinthians 6.20? This is why you need to read the Puritans and then read them again and then read them again because most even Reformed theologians today will stop a sermon right here. I've told you the truths of the text. This is what's true of the text. Use your body to glorify the Lord. And that's what most theologians do. They stop there and we're all going, I want to do that. How do I do that? Okay, so I this is intriguing because <laughs> I mean he's he's got me now. Like I what what like what is there going to be that he's going to add? Because if he says everyone stops there, like you've walked through the text, he's explained how to do that, he's explained the importance of that. Now we know what to do. Applica I mean, we know the applicability, right? Like what's after this? I mean, because we're forty five minutes into the sermon, and I told you it's an hour and seven, so maybe that's why this last half has more on on it because there's something here that he says everybody else stops here but i'm going to keep going let's see what it is i'm intrigued 
But the Puritans would go, I'll give you 17 ways you can do that. So in your ordinary life, you can go, okay, okay. I can do, this is what I can devote myself to that will ascribe glory to the Lord. And so I've repackaged those 17 particulars. Okay, so it's practicality. So he's got 17 practical ways to apply this based upon, uh, I forget this guy that he quoted. To present them to you so that we can all have clear instruction of how to best labor to glorify God in our bodies. I encourage you, if you don't own Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, fix that today. Fix it today. Every house should have that. And I encourage you to read that chapter on what is the chief end of man. You should read that at least once a year. When he goes through, this is why you exist, and this is the particulars of how you do glorify God. Read that once a year, and you will be better for it. But now, 17 particulars. How can we actually obey 1 Corinthians 6.20 and glorify God in our bodies? First, you glorify God when you aim purely at his glory. When your aim and focus is to do everything to glorify him. You have to aim correctly. Colossians 1.16-18 All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so, therefore, our aim... It's one of my favorite verses, just FYI. Not that it has anything to do with this. ...has to be for why God created everything, to glorify himself through his son, Jesus Christ. If you would glorify God, believer, it must be your aim that Christ would be honored in your body in both life and in death. Listen to how Paul says this in Philippians 1. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, in life and in death. And then he says the famous verse, because for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do you love that verse? That verse has to do with using your physical body to glorify the Lord so that Christ would be magnified in my body. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You have to aim. You glorify God when you aim purely at his glory. Second, you glorify God by sincerely confessing your sin to him. By confessing your sin to God. Just like David did in Psalm 51. Just like the Apostle John teaches us to do in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is glorified as you aim at his glory and as you sincerely confess your sins to him. All right, so really quick, I, he's on number two. There's 17 of them. I'll just be really frank with you. I don't think there's going to be anything I'm going to be able to add or take away from them. But I do think that it would be beneficial to sort of hear him out so to demonstrate what I think is going to happen and I think is a good practice, which is stating the applicability, pulling from other places in Scripture to demonstrate how that is biblical, but also ultimately tying it back 
to his main text here. So I'm going to let him go all the way through. I would just say that uh, if you don't want to hear all of these things, because honestly, there's not going to be it. I'm just going to let it play through as if we were just listening to the sermon. I'm not going to interject anything until the end. There's about uh, roughly 10, about just shy of 20 minutes left uh, in this uh, sermon. And so if you want to kind of skip ahead to the end to hear the, the, you know, my overall views on this whole thing, which I think I've already made clear, but I think there's some interesting things we can talk about at the end. You can skip there. Or you can sit here with me uh, and all of us that are digitally watching together and hear these out because I think they are going to be beneficial to you. I, I, I think they're going to be helpful. So, Third, you glorify God by believing his promises. God is glorified as you search the scriptures diligently to find all of the golden nuggets of promises that he's put in there. And you say, I'm clinging to that one. I'm going to trust the Lord. Listen to this in Romans 4. This is why I say, believing His promises glorifies Him. When we trust His promises and we cling to them, it glorifies Him. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. When you cling to the promises of God in scripture and believe them and say, he will fulfill what he's promised, God says, you glorify me in that. You glorify me in that. You glorify God by believing his promises. That's Romans 4.20. You glorify God, fourthly, by being tender of his glory. That means you care whether or not God is glorified. And when you see his glory trampled, it breaks you. When you do not live for his glory, it breaks you. When you see other people not living for his glory, it grieves you because you are tender of his glory. This is what the psalmist means. And then Christ even picks up that the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The psalmist says, the reproaches, Lord, of those people who reproach you speak evil against you, Lord. I feel it. They've fallen on me. The glory of the Lord is more precious to him than the lives of men. Therefore, you must make the glory of the Lord more important to you and precious to you than anything else. If you would glorify the Lord by being tender of his glory, then his glory must be more precious to you than even your very life. You glorify God by being tender of his glory when you're deeply affected by whether or not he is glorified as he deserves. Fifth, you glorify God by bearing fruit, by being fruitful in your life. Christ says in John 15, 8, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The fruit is love and good works in this context, not just the fruit of the spirit. That's the spirit who produces that fruit in us. This fruitfulness has to do with devoting yourself to good works, to love and serve other people. You glorify God 
by bearing fruit. You prove to be His disciples. Sixth, you glorify God by being content. By being content in whatever state He has put you in by His providence. Contentment does not mean I'm sitting in this sin, but I'm content because this is... So, what did, I know I said I wasn't going to break back in. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. One of the things that's really interesting here is how really these... I mean, I know he's got a whole bunch more. But how applicable they are to every single sort of position you could take on this. So, not only is it, hey, there's, there's, there's bearing fruit, right? And then he goes from bearing fruit to being content in where you are, which typically are seen as oppositional sometimes as far as doing things versus, you know, being content in the thing that you are doing currently uh, versus doing a lot of things. So I think it's, that's really cool how in these, and I don't read a lot of Puritans, so I've obviously sort of maybe missed this point that he's making as far as like why, like how this has been done previously uh, by those that have come before us. Um, but these are all really helpful because no matter who you are listening, out of the 15 that he's going to mention, one of these is going to be incredibly applicable, if not more, to helping you give very practical, I walk out of the door, you know, I walk out of this church and I go into life and these things are immediately applicable to you. This is just as far as I've been sanctified so far. That's wicked contentment, evil contentment. Christian contentment has to do with knowing and submitting to God's providence in whatever state you're in and saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Christian contentment. Our murmuring or our complaining or our whining is, as Richard Sibbs said, the devil's music. The devil dances to your whining. The devil dances to your complaining. Our murmuring is the devil's music. God is not glorified by your discontent, by your covetousness. God is not glorified by your sinfully indulging in anxieties and constantly giving in to worrying as you don't trust the Lord and His providence. God is magnified by you being content in whatever state he has put you in by his providence. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That passage is not about baseball. It's about contentment with whatever state you're in. And as Jeremiah Burroughs points out in his wonderful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If that one hits you and you're thinking, I am not glorifying God by being content 
then you need to read The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson or The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. I forget who recommended that. It was either Matt or Josh from the Tuesday Night Livestream. One of those two guys recommended that book. So between all of these recommendations, it sounds like I need to get the book. Attack those things. Attack your anxieties. Attack your worries. Attack your discontent by studying and praying. Those books, all they do is tease out that passage. I've learned how to be content. They tease it out and apply it. You glorify God by being content. Seventh, you glorify God by working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. By laboring to grow in grace, God is glorified. Listen to this lengthy part from Watson's book on glorifying God. I quote it at length because it's just beautiful. Watson says, God has twisted together his glory and our good. We glorify him by promoting our own salvation. It is a glory to God to have multitudes of converts. His design of free grace takes effect and God has the glory of his mercy. So that while we are endeavoring our salvation, we are honoring God. What an encouragement is this to the service of God to think, while I am hearing preaching of the word and praying, I am glorifying God. While I am furthering my own glory in heaven, I am increasing God's glory. Would it not be an encouragement to a subject to hear his prince say to him, you will honor me and please me very much if you will go to yonder mine of gold and dig as much gold for yourself as you can carry away. That's what God says to us. So for God to say, go to the ordinances, means go to the preaching, go to the Lord's table, go to prayer, get as much grace as you can, dig out as much salvation as you can, and the more happiness you have, the more I shall count myself glorified. You glorify God when you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Man, like, <laughs> I, I hate... I hate to run it for you, but like, this is good. Like, I, I mean, uh, there's some stuff I want to add at the end and I know I keep telling, I'm not going to interrupt and I keep, I keep interrupting. We got 10 minutes left here, but man, like how helpful this is for the believer, right? I don't expect like if, if you're an unbeliever listening to this, or I'm sure an unbeliever in his church, like some of this just doesn't make sense to people. Um, I mean, I'm thinking back like as a, as a, as a, as a teenager, uh, as a kid, like I wanted it. I'm like, what is this dude talking about? I've been like, look at this dude. Like that would have been my reaction, but like, man, this is such good encouragement for the believer. Eighth, you glorify God by living for God. This is the meaning of godliness. This is what it means to be godly, to live in devotion to the Lord, to live for Him. Ninth, you glorify God by walking cheerfully, by actually obeying Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Those are two imperative verbs. That's not an option. 
Christian, you are commanded to rejoice. If you think, I don't have anything to rejoice about, then it's probably because your tank is empty. You're not reading the scriptures. You're not hearing the preaching of the word. You're not in Christian fellowship. Or you're making peace with sin in your life, and so you are drained. A Christian that doesn't have a reason to rejoice? That's not a Christian. Christ has purchased us with his own blood. We have thousands of reasons to rejoice. And God is glorified as we live like that. We live happily, rejoicing in the Lord for all that he is and all that he's done for us. Tenth, you glorify God by standing up for his truths. By defending the truth that he reveals in the scripture. Eleventh, you glorify God by praising him. Ascribing to the Lord the glory that's due his name. In private worship, in family worship, in public worship on the Lord's day. God is glorified as we ascribe to him the glory due his name. Twelfth, you glorify God by being zealous for his name. By having a holy zeal. Zeal is so lost in our day, especially in the pulpit. We have so many pastors that know the truth, but I listen to them and think, I don't think you believe that's true. Do you really believe these people out here listening to you are either going to be in heaven forever or burning in hell forever? Do you really believe that Christ is not worthy To have these people offer themselves up to him and glorify him. Why are you so soft? We need holy zeal, not only in the pulpit, but in Christians' lives. Just amen. (laughs) Just amen is all I got to say to that. What is zeal? It's a mixed affection, Watson even points out. A compound of love and anger. People hate anger today, but anger is good if it's righteous. Anger for sin. It carries forth our love to God and our anger against sin in an intense degree. Watson says, zeal is impatient of God's dishonor. A Christian fired with zeal takes a dishonor done to God worse than any injury done to himself. We have a lack of holy zeal for the Lord's glory. And that's why so many professed believers are passive and apathetic. There's no zeal. Like Jehu said to Jehonadab in 2 Kings 10, you need to be able to look at other believers and say, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Can you say that? Do you live like that? Real quick, I, the reason I was looking down, I, I was trying to find where in the world this is. This is in M U S K O G E E, Oklahoma. So if you are anywhere near Muskegee, <laughs> I don't know how you say it, uh, Oklahoma, uh, sounds to me like you need to check out Ecclesia Muskogee like today. I'll, I, again, I'll put their website in. I don't typically do this. In regards to like, hey, check out this church. Because these sermon reviews aren't necessarily about the pastor, about how good or bad they are. Um, or like, hey, look how great this person is or look how bad they are. But I'll tell you right now, this is solid preaching right now. You check If you are anywhere close and you're looking for a church, this sounds to me to be a good one. 
you so desperately want him to be magnified in your body and in the world that you could say to other believers, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Can you say with Christ, zeal for your house has consumed me. Why did Christ flip over tables, dump out the bags, create a whip to drive these abusers out of the temple in Jerusalem? Because of holy zeal for the Lord's glory and a hatred for anything that would try to steal the Lord's glory. Oh, how badly we need zealousness for Christ's glory today. Men and women care more about what others think of them than what God thinks of them. Men and women care more about offending people rather than offending God. Men and women today seem to care more about the feelings of others rather than being zealous for Christ's glory. I wish it were not so. God help us. Light us on fire. You glorify God 13th. When you have an eye to God and all of your natural actions and everything that you do in your natural, ordinary life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Men, specifically men, you have two primary duties in your life. You are to provide and protect. And if you do not take care of your physical body, You will be a bad provider or a bad protector. Probably both. Get to work. Glorify God in your body. You have people to provide for. You have people to protect. We must not only fuel our bodies faithfully, but also exert them to be best equipped to provide and protect as God has charged us to. So that we can take care of those that God has given us and our neighbors at large. Fourteenth, you glorify God by laboring to draw others to God, by preaching the gospel to them, by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you tell the gospel to others and exhort them to come to Christ, God is glorified by that. Make disciples of all nations. God is glorified as we labor to fulfill the Great Commission. Fifteenth, you glorify God in a high degree when you suffer for him, when you suffer for him. Sixteenth, you glorify God when you ascribe to God the glory of all that you do. Just like Paul does in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. God is glorified as you ascribe to him all the glory for anything and everything that you do. Your response is, praise God. Seventeenth and finally, you glorify God by a holy life. You glorify God by a holy life. Second Corinthians 7.1 Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God by a holy life. Believers, every single one of you, boys, you must use your body to glorify the Lord. 
Girls, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. Men, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. Women, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. Husbands, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. Wives, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. Fathers, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. I, I love how he's being so... This is going back to the point that he made before. We're almost to the end, uh, like two minutes until this particular sermon ends. He's going back and basically doing what he did before. It's not the we... It's the individual you. So as a husband, as a father, as a, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a woman, as a mother, like whatever your thing, like whatever your title is, whatever, like you are responsible in that for glorifying God. And this is a, I think this is a great way to end it. Mothers, you must use your bodies to glorify the Lord. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. May he give us the grace to do it. Pray with me. Okay, so he is going to pray. That was the end of it right there. And so the interesting part of all of this, um, uh, hold on real quick. So the interesting part of this whole thing uh, is that was really <laughs> that it was really good. Hold on, let, let's go over the first. Let's go over the three things we always cover before I get into the interesting part. So did he read the text? A hundred percent, he read the text. I mean, there's only two verses, but he referenced a ton of other texts in connection to his main text. Secondly, did he exegete the scriptures in context and culture to bring an application? Yes. <laughs> what did we do for the last, uh, you know, nearly two hours and listen to him do that? And three, did he preach the gospel? Yes. There was especially that point basically in the middle where he was very purposeful in calling out people that either weren't believers or were false converts and calling them to Christ and away from their sin. And um, so even in a sermon that was almost 100% for the believer, he, he brought a section in the middle there and, and talked about repentance and clinging to Christ and following him. And so, yeah, he covered all the bases easily. I think the interesting part that I want to talk about is that um, the, at least for me, again, I know I told you guys to comment down below before, just if you haven't done that yet, do it again, but, uh, or do it now, but that didn't feel like an hour and a, hour and seven minutes to me. Uh, I think his pacing was great. His emphasis on scripture was great. His ability to bring out context and culture was great. Uh, and really him hammering home over and over again, the necessity to know this, but not only just know it, but apply it. And then giving those 17 examples again, I mean, admittedly he reused them from, I think it was Thomas Watson, but, uh, even that reusing those to give applicable applicability and immediate response in how you do things in a variety of different ways was incredibly helpful. And it's, it was amazing. So again, I'll put the full sermon without my commentary below. I'll put the website for the church down below in case you're in the Oklahoma area, maybe around them and you're looking for a church. I think, I mean, I, I don't want to say based off one sermon, I can be like, oh yeah, it's great. It seems pretty good though. It's worth checking out at least. And um, so yeah, all that's there. So let me know what you guys think. 
in the comment section below. If you liked it, as always, please leave a thumbs up. Helps the algorithm. If you you know had any comment, leave that below. Also helps the algorithm. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you need to do that. We're close to 10,000 subscribers. Not that numbers matter, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's a pretty cool number, guys. I mean, I get it. Again, who cares? Who cares how many people watch? Um, and I constantly having to check myself on that, like not getting caught up in the numbers, but the fact that we're almost to 10,000 subscribers, basically doing sermon reviews and talking about biblical topics is amazing to me. And I want to thank you guys for doing that. I, especially at the end here, and I don't do this nearly enough. I want to thank the patrons for helping make, give me, giving me the ability to make the time in my day to do these sermon reviews for you guys. And if you want to help out join the patron, you can do that link below guys. Thanks for watching. Thanks for following. Thanks for all the cool things you do. I'll talk to you next time.